0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Turn your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20. As I read from God's law again this morning. I'll read verses 1 through 21 of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. O God in heaven, we come, having now read your law, and we pray that you would please write it on our hearts, that we would love righteousness, that we would hunger for righteousness, that our hearts would truly be meek, Forgive us for the absence of meekness and the absence of hunger for righteousness. And we please pray that you would replace it with a true presence of meekness and a true hunger for righteousness. I pray, dear God, that you would anoint the hearing and preaching of your word and you'd sanctify your people through it and you'd bless now our time together as we fully depend upon you to minister to us, Save sinners and strengthen your church through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. So we're in the Ten Commandments, as you know. And this is the natural law of God, and it's the constitution of reality. This is how the world works. The Ten Commandments, it's how the world works. It's how reality works. You want to know how the reality works in the normal or the moral realm? It's the law of God. And we're in this seventh commandment, which is the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And what is stated is a prohibition, it also commands the very opposite act of righteousness. This is an interpretive principle that we need in applying God's law. When there's a prohibition, the prohibition stated also is commanding the opposite act of righteousness. And so, even as we should not commit adultery, you must not commit adultery, you must esteem marriage You must enjoy marriage. You must be intimate in marriage. You must cultivate a healthy marriage. These are all aspects of this commandment. And so I've presented what I've done so far as I've looked at the seventh commandment as I talked about the commandment in general and the prohibition and what it prohibits. And then I spent a Sunday presenting a positive vision of what marriage actually is. And then last Sunday, I started to present to you the purpose of marriage with the hopes of helping you cultivate a sound biblical marriage. Well, this Sunday, I'm going to continue on with that. Whereas last week, I talked about the design of marriage for your own sanctification and the design of marriage to prevent sexual immorality so that you are actually commanded positively to enjoy intimacy within the context of marriage and not withhold it. Well, there are other also purposes to marriage, and I want to talk about three more purposes that I see in Scripture for marriage. And those three other purposes, on top of what I talked about last week, include companionship, include producing godly offspring, and include the Illustration of the gospel. So those are really my three points today. The purpose of marriage, companionship. The purpose of marriage, godly offspring. And the purpose of marriage to illustrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I think this is important because you will be disillusioned and disappointed if you have the wrong pursuit in marriage. So if your pursuit in marriage is strictly romance or pleasure, then you will be sorely disappointed with marriage because there's so much more to marriage than that. In fact, those are the fruits of marriage. And if you're simply pursuing the fruit without pursuing the cultivation, then you're going to end up with neither. You actually have to pursue the process And part of the process is understanding what the objectives are. What is the purpose of marriage? And so you don't wanna enter marriage or be married with this idyllic vision that it's always going to be romance or it's always going to be intimacy. You need to enter marriage and be married with a realistic vision of what marriage is. And that includes the purposes. I'm gonna talk about in the weeks to come yet still some aspects of marriage that help you cultivate a good marriage. For example, communication skills and dealing with bitterness and forgiveness and so on, which I think are very important as we consider marriage. But I want to talk today and finish up this section on the purposes of marriage, companionship, godly offspring, illustrating the gospel, on top of what I talked about last week, which is sanctification and preventing sexual immorality. So... This is difficult for some, I noted that last week, and some have had bad experiences, or failed marriage, or in their lonely marriage, or they're single, and they really want to get married. And in fact, I've had more than one occasion where somebody's told me that this is a very, I've had several occasions where someone's told me this is very difficult for them to hear. Now, I'm not intentionally picking on people with this series, I think this is very important stuff. But even as I deal with things that might be difficult for some of you to hear, what I want you to do is come to these sermons ready to learn from the word of the Lord. With meek and tender hearts, ready to receive, you know, God's truth that he's designed for you. And and God's truth is designed for your good. So this isn't, some of you, on more than one occasion, someone says, well, I'd like to skip church or I'd like to skip small group because uh, these are so difficult for me to hear. But one of the things that the scriptures tell you to do is to submit yourself to the heavy hand of God and to learn to trust and love and adore God, even when some of the things that his Bible says are difficult for you to hear, because for some reason you're not living the way you want to live, but yet providence is designed right now for you to live in a certain, um, in a certain way that you would rather not live in. But this is part of learning to trust in the Lord. And so as I step on some nerves with saying that and saying a lot of other things through this whole series on the Ten Commandments, as I step on your nerves, I'm telling you that the most important thing is that you run to Jesus Christ. You don't put up these defense mechanisms and say, I simply want to avoid the truth or I simply want to run from it and hide from it. The most important thing that you do is you run to Jesus Christ for comfort. You learn to trust his providence. And you run to him for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what I'm telling you to do typically as I begin these sermons, these sermons on the Ten Commandments. Because I knew they would be tender for a lot of people. Because now what we're dealing with is people's hearts. The, the law of God is needling around in your heart. It's, it's pointing out discontentment. It's pointing out thanklessness. It's pointing out skewed ideas. It's pointing out sins and sinful ambitions. And so all of this is being exposed as I go through the series on the Ten Commandments. And instead of leaving church feeling guilty, I want you to leave church feeling grateful that you have a Savior who, who forgives guilty sinners. He forgives guilty sinners. And so the habit of your heart when you come under the conviction for sin, needs to be to run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And this is a continual reminder as I preach this series. And beyond that, that should be a continual reminder as you learn to live the Christian life. Your life as a Christian is always running to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. So you're not carrying the weight of your own sins around that You're running to Christ, who is the great forgiver of sins. Your sins are great, but his forgiveness is even greater. Your evil is great, but his grace is greater than your evil. And he's a wonderful savior, and you can trust him with your whole heart. So having said all of that, I want to get to the purpose of marriage. And I've already talked about two purposes of marriage last week. Well, here's another purpose of marriage, and this is the purpose of companionship. Companionship. The purpose of marriage. Companionship. Now, God has created us in His own image. Scriptures tell us that. And as such, we are social creatures. God Himself has always lived in relationship. There was never a time where He has not lived in relationship because God is Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And The Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And there's only one God. And yet, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And so, as much of a mystery as that is, you have three distinct persons, each being equally God, and yet there is only one God. I don't expect you to wrap your mind around that. Because just as marriage is a little mystery... It is. So the Trinity is a big mystery. But yet, there is something about marriage that reflects this way that God is, how he exists. Is Somebody is a God who is social. He's relational. He has always had relationship in and of himself, and he created human beings to enter into relationship with him. So, if you're a Christian, this is the great hope of the gospel. You enter into a relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so you now fellowship with the Trinity. And as God Himself is relational, He's created you to be relational. And in creating you to be relational, He has designed marriage, which is the foundation for all relationships. You say, well, how is marriage the foundation for all relationships? Because If it weren't for reproduction, there would be no other relationships. Even if you're not married, it's because somebody else reproduced that you have friends and that you exist. So marriage itself is designed by God to not just create families, but to create villages and communities and cities and countries in the world. Marriage is the first institution of God in the Bible. It's more important than government. Why is it more important than government? Because if you remove the government, families will still exist. But if you remove the people that come from families, then there's no need for government. Families might have a difficult time existing without the stability that civil government provides, but they can exist without civil government. It's happened before. But civil government cannot exist without people which come from families. And as God's design entails marriage. And so this is the most important human relationship. is marriage. By God's design, marriage is the primary relationship. And it's, one of the reasons marriage is important is because of its purpose in companionship. And from marriage, all other relationships flow. Marriage produces children and children produce societies, and societies produce nations. And so I, I talked a few weeks ago, as I talked just a little bit of a, a rabbit trail here, I talked a few weeks ago about the importance of, of, of being a housewife for a married woman who has children. And, and one thing that I, I wish I'd emphasized more in that sermon is, yes, this is a duty of God, but it's a great honor that's given of God. Because this is how nations are actually built, When you have a whole generation of women that are committed to properly raising their children and instilling in them a Christian worldview, an outlook on life, and they are investing their lives in this, you now have nation builders. And so those of you who are investing in changing diapers and and nursing and making meals and cleaning laundry and mopping floors and... And all of these day-to-day things that some people might see as mundane, what you're actually doing is you're building a nation. Because it's from your home that nations will flow and, and produce. This is society building. There's nothing more important than it, I believe. And so, but as I've noted, this, the pr- purpose of marriage, one of the purposes of marriage is companionship. And so I've talked about this before, but in Genesis chapter 1, everything was good. God says and it was good 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 everything and it was very good right that's how genesis chapter 1 ends it was very good the creation of God was very good but then you get to genesis chapter 2 verse 18 and there's one thing that's not good and that's that man is alone God created us to be social And so, what did God do? Well, he caused Adam to go into a deep sleep. He took a rib out of Adam, and he used that rib to create a woman. Adam, at last, found his companion, his wife. And in finding his companion, his wife, he praised the Lord. And the scriptures tell us they were naked and were not ashamed within the intimacy of marriage. And so, this was God's purpose. Originally, he didn't want man to be alone, and the only thing in the Garden of Eden that was not good was that the man was alone. And Jesus believed in this so much that he actually repeated it. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, he answered, Jesus is speaking about marriage and divorce here, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female in verse 5 and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become flesh. They are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together. Let no man put asunder or separate. And so Jesus there is now emphasizing this most important aspect or this most important human relationship, the relationship of marriage, where two people come together and actually become one. And he's talking about how beautiful and wonderful and sacred this union is, the marriage relationship. And so Jesus repeats this emphasis in the Gospels, and it's left to us on the pages of Scripture. So marriage itself, one of the reasons... One of the purposes for marriage is companionship, to love and to be loved, to have someone to know and someone to be known by. A.W. Pink, I think, captures this very well with his statement and God hath knit the bones and the sinews together for the strengthening of our bodies. So he puts our bodies together in his purpose for our strength. So he has ordained the joining of men, or man and woman together in wedlock for the strengthening of their lives. It's the joining together, it's the relationships, it's the coming together, and then it's out of that one relationship, multiple relationships like that, that even more relationships are formed because that's how children are supposed to be born, and then from that, that's how societies emerge. And there's different ways that this companionship plays out and benefits husbands and wives. We are to help each other. And one of the things that we are to do to help each other, husbands and wives are to help each other, is to avoid sin. And when one or the other falls into sin, it is the duty of the other to gently help him or her towards restoration. We are to encourage each other in righteousness. So so I hope as you hear me talk up here about husbands leading their wives and wives submitting to their husbands, I hope you're not hearing me say that means that women aren't supposed to correct their husbands. I hope that's not, you're not hearing that. Because a wife who's going to help her husband is a wife who's gently going to point out his sin to him. And a husband who's going to bless and lead his wife is a husband who's going to point out her sin or her sin to her. And so this is working both ways. You're living within the context of, I mean, nobody knows you better than your wife. Nobody knows you better than your husband. And so God's put you in this most intimate of relationships so you can graciously and kindly help each other live more righteous lives. I can say that I'm a much better Christian for having been married to my wife for the two decades and plus that we've been together. Okay, I'm a much more patient man. I'm a much more gracious man. I'm much more tender with my children because of her. And I've learned a great deal from her. And so part of living within the context of marriage is learning righteousness from each other, helping each other towards sanctification. This is part of the companionship Process. This is why you have any Christian relationship. Why why would you be in small groups? Some of you are in small groups, and we really encourage small groups in the church. For what purpose? For discipleship. So you can learn holiness. You can learn to be more like Jesus Christ. You get yourself with other Christians and sharpen each other. The scriptures say, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And this is certainly true in marriage. And one thing that happens, by the way, when iron is sharpening iron, if you've ever sharpened a knife, what happens? Sometimes the sparks fly, don't they? Okay? This is a normal aspect of life. I'm going to talk about conflict in a few weeks. Sometimes, sometimes things get kind of hot. This is a normal aspect of life. So if you've had conflict in your marriage, you're not alone. If a good marriage, there will be healthy levels of conflict within it. As you learn to work things out, and even the process of working things out will bring about sanctification. As one man, or as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. This is interesting because he's actually talking about believers who are married to unbelievers. So some of you are in marriages, you're a believer and your husband's an unbeliever or you're a believer and your wife's an unbeliever. Well, Paul's talking about that in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. He says, The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, is, they are holy. So what Paul is saying is that the influence of a believing husband, even if his wife's unbelieving, his wife's becoming a better person because of his presence. Or if a unchristian woman, non or sorry, a Christian woman is married to a non-Christian man, an unchristian man, in the best situation, the unchristian man, the unbeliever, is becoming a better person as a result of his wife's influence. And then when there is an unequal yoke, which Paul's talking about, it happens. I'm not going to encourage it, and I'm going to talk about choosing a mate in a few weeks. but uh, So we don't want to encourage unequal yokes, but sometimes someone gets saved after marriage or people make decisions that they probably shouldn't have when they're younger and they find themselves in a marriage where there's an unequal yoke. Even the children are better off with having one believing spouse than no believing spouses as a parent. Paul says that the children are made holy and the other unbelieving spouse is made holy as a result. So if that is a case in an unequally yoked marriage, It certainly is the case in an equally yoked marriage. So if the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse, how much more will the believing spouse be made holy by the other believing spouse? In the case of a godly union, what should happen is is you keep pushing each other over time to higher levels of personal holiness in Jesus Christ is you welcome gentle correction from each other and insights and prayer for each other. You see each other's weaknesses and you kindly pray that God will help the other live a more godly and holy life. And so this is part of the companionship. The purpose of marriage, just as the purpose of any other Christian relationship, but marriage is like the pinnacle of relationships, is is that you are companions so that you are growing in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And beyond that, part of the companionship aspect is, if someone is sick, the other is there to care for him or her. And this type of companionship is a great comfort and also helps towards healing. I mean, how many many guys, you know, you got something wrong with you, and you're like, I don't want to go to the doctor. Well, what's your wife say? You should go to the doctor. I don't want to go, right? And the, what's the way, you should go to the doctor. And, and so that level of kind of push to take care of yourself, or if you're going in for a second helping of dessert and you know, well, <laughs> right? The, these types of things are, are ways that we, that, that companionship is good and it is beneficial and so on. You're helping each other when you're sick, you're helping each other to be more healthy. And there are some right now, actually, in the church who, who have spouses, husband a husband or a wife has a spouse that is quite sick or quite ill. And the ill spouse is so much better off because there's a healthy spouse providing care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As exhausting as it can be for a healthy spouse, this is the great blessing of God in a marriage. And it's a great way to honor the Lord is to care for each other even when it is difficult and painful and challenging in trying to do so. It's a wonderful thing to behold, especially as, as Christians age. And you see a, a very elderly couple who, in their last years, are learning to care for each other with a level of patience that they've never had to um, exercise In times past, so that God is using the situation, what? Well, for sanctification and for mutual care and companionship and love. So, not only is it a companionship in marriage that moves towards sanctification, it's a companionship whereby each other is caring for the other, but it's also a companionship that produces a refuge from the world. This has been my experience, because the world can be very miserable. This is why I think the difficult marriage, someone having a, a painful marriage is, is such, it can be so, can so, so, so burdensome at times. Because you can, you can leave work, but you can never leave your marriage, right? And, but when marriage is sweet, you leave work to go home to the sweetness of your marriage and the sweetness of your home. And so it provides kind of an Edenic relief from the harsh realities of a godless world. I really like this quote by John Angle James on this particular subject. And, and you and I can relate to this, hopefully. The springs of public and social life may be greatly corrupted. The nation in which he dwells may degenerate into licentiousness, into idolatry, or into the most daring Infidelity. Can you relate to that? The nation in which you live has degenerated into the most gross infidelity. Retiring then to this most sacred enclosure, he may entrench himself, and there, lifting up a standard for God, either wait the approach of better days, or leave a few behind him, on whom the best blessings of those days will certainly descend. What is marriage? Well, marriage is a refuge from the world where you go to wait for better days or, if you won't see the better days, where you go to raise a generation that will enjoy the better days. Because better days are yet to come. And so marriage is a little reprieve. It's a little shelter. The home life is a little shelter from the miserable storms that we face and the accursed reign of sin in this wicked world. And this all comes from the companionship. The companionship produces societies which produce more companionship. The companionship helps towards holiness as each other learns to help each other along the way. The companionship is there so that you can help each other when you are sick. And the companionship provides a refuge from a sin-cursed world. The companionship of marriage is a beautiful thing. The purpose of marriage. Companionship. Companionship. I'll give you another purpose of marriage. First one there was companionship. And here's another one. The purpose of marriage, to raise godly offspring. To raise godly offspring, I'll give you a little story as I start off this point. We were going through the airport a few weeks ago because my whole family went out to Alberta. And we had an enjoyable time together. But is... My wife went through security, which is always a pleasant experience, especially with six kids. Um, the lady who was running security kind of grunted at her when she told her that all the six kids were hers. What's wrong with you? right? And that's, that tells you the state of our world right now, is that children are seen, if you have many children, It seemed to be stupidity or or folly. You know, socially, it would be unacceptable um, to publicly grunt and bemoan a woman who just told you she was divorced six times. It would be unacceptable to say, what's wrong with you, right? It, It would be unacceptable to publicly and moan and grunt Um, and many other occasions where someone would indeed even confess to six different types of sin. But when it's socially acceptable, and in fact it's more common for people to groan and bemoan the fact that someone has a lot of kids instead of rejoice over that, that ought to tell you that we're living among Canaanites. So this is a, a very hateful generation that we live in that hates life. And it's a generation that celebrates the destruction of life and what they perceive as freedom from children. So they might sound like us and even look like us and dress like us, but they are not us. They are Canaanites with that type of an attitude. But Christians should honor mothers. And should honor, have a special honor for pregnant women who are carrying children. And this is why if you see a pregnant woman that comes into the room and there's nowhere for her to sit, you give her your seat. And you provide very special care and special honor for a pregnant woman because she is caring for life in her very body. And to us, as Christians, the raising of children, not just the bearing of children, but the raising of children is the most important task. And children are to be received as great gifts from God. There is a purpose in marriage, and a purpose in marriage is to produce godly offspring. So Genesis 1, to 28, I'll read it for you, speaks of this. On the first pages of the Bible, the beauty of... Of bearing children. One twenty seven through twenty eight, it says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then Genesis two. Verse 10, we're told that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and they're divided into four rivers. And so what's happening here is we know that Adam and Eve are in the garden of Eden, we know that a river is flowing out of the garden of Eden, and we know that God's told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So they're on top of a big hill, if the rivers are flowing out of it, and they're looking over the horizon, and they have this garden on a hill, and the rest of the world is untamed wilderness, And Adam and Eve, their task is to go out and to tame the wilderness, to turn it into a garden. And then God says, and this is how you're going to do it. You're going to do it by being fruitful and multiplying, by having children, by reproducing yourself in the lives of your children, so your children are going to extend the boundaries of Eden. And your children are going to fill the earth. So the children, in this sense, are part of God's perfect plan to fill the earth, not just with people, but with people who praise his name. Now, of course, on this side of the fall, it's, it's, it's not necessarily an untamed wilderness, although it is in some aspects, but it's a wilderness of sin. And so what the job of the parent now is to do is not just to produce offspring, but to produce offspring and disciple them in a way so they launch out of the home And not expand expand the boundaries of Eden, but expand the boundaries of the kingdom of God so that his worshiping people are found in the face of the earth. It's funny, like, in Noah, God's told Noah the exact same thing in Genesis 9, verse 1. And we know that the ark landed where? It landed on Mount Ararat. And when the ark landed on Mount Ararat, the people came out of the ark, Noah and his sons and their wives... And they looked out from the mountain, Mount Ararat, just like Adam and Eve looked out from the mountain of Edom. And it says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis 9, verse 7, and he said, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so just like Adam, Noah looked out over the landscape from a mountain over the horizon and saw... The world, and he was told to fill it with his offspring. And that would only happen with children. And so God told him and his sons to be fruitful and multiply. And so this is the task of parenting the task of parenting to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with godly offspring from the mountain. God declared, actually, through the prophet Malachi, he told him the purpose of marriage. Said in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. He said, But you say, Why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one? Speaking of marriage, with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What was God seeking in marriage? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God was seeking godly offspring. Godly offspring. So, making babies is relatively easy compared to training them to be godly adults. Making babies is relatively easy compared to training them to be godly adults who themselves will make babies and train godly adults. And so teaching you to properly raise and train your children is beyond the purview of this sermon. That's way beyond what I'm going to be doing today. But here's some really simple advice that served me well as I've sought to raise my children properly and in the Lord. Throw out all the dumb therapy and psychobabble. And somebody who's, you know, writing a book with a PhD from some ivory tower whose life is an absolute disaster. Okay, throw that garbage out. And find somebody whose children have turned out well and ask them a lot of questions and observe a lot from them. Ask a lot of questions and observe a lot from them. this is. This is something that we've tried to do since day one. I remember in seminary, we had one child at the time, just Elijah, and we we heard of a family that we thought we could model our home life after, but they lived about six hours away. And so we drove to them one day just to spend a whole day with them. And I wanted to observe their family and ask them a whole ton of questions. Well, you don't have to drive six hours. There's a good number of people in this church who could help you if you want to learn but find a family whose children have turned out reasonably well and ask them a lot of questions. And I can tell you that not only did I do that, but I don't know how many times I've, I've sat down with, for example, Harvey Fry, and I've asked him lots of questions about parenting my own kids. What do you think about this situation? What do I do here? Please tell me what I must do. How should I be praying? What should I not do? What are some pitfalls that I can avoid in this situation? And I think too many parents, when it comes to raising your children, are passive. And they figured things will just turn out okay. But God uses means. And so if you were, if you were to raise cattle, and you'd never had any experience with farming, and you know nothing about cattle, You don't even know anything about animals. You would be foolish to buy a ranch and buy a whole bunch of cattle and not ask anyone any questions and not watch anyone who's done it successfully. How much more with children? How much more with children? And like children are so much more precious than cattle. And so if you want to raise your children properly and you want to do it right, you need to surround yourself with people. I I remember one man in this church, he, he and his wife have a number of children. I won't tell you who he is. Speaking about learning how to parent. They have a bunch of little kids. And then he mentioned another family in the church. And he said, I learned more by watching them over dinner than I would learn reading 10 books. And that is the absolute truth is you learn how to do this by watching people who've done it successfully. And some of you, that just might be in your parents. Maybe your parents done a good job, and you know, a wise parent isn't gonna meddle with their married children's affairs, but a wise child, if, if his parents have done a good job, will ask his parents lots of advice, which my wife and I have done from time to time with our in-laws as it pertains to the raising of our own children ask them lots of advice. What do you think about this? How should I deal with this situation? You've dealt with it before. What should I be doing? But the problem is we live in a world where everyone's, you know, how dare you tell me anything about my kids? Like if somebody comes up to you in, in the church and, and they see that things aren't going well in your home and they wanna to talk to you about it, likely it's coming out of a heart of love and it would not be an act of meekness on your part to get really defensive. Because they might see something that you don't see. And so part of the purpose of marriage is to raise godly offspring. And God uses means to do this. He uses means. I'm not up here saying there's a magical formula. And sometimes, even if a really good farmer... Sometimes there can be a hailstorm that comes in that destroys the crop. And those things are beyond your control. And so, every now and then that happens. But typically, there's a way to farm. There's a way to do animal husbandry. There's a way to raise children properly. And so, if you want to learn how to do it, find people who are doing it properly. But the biblical vision for family life... Is that the home? Is that the home is a busy place teeming with life. So, Psalm 128, verse 3, it says, one of the promises of of the man who fears the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Okay? I'm not up here prescribing a set number of children for your home. That's not what I'm doing. Some people have health issues, and they can't control things, and everyone has different capacities. But what I am saying is that the idea of welcoming life into your home is a wonderful idea, because this is the vision of the man who fears the Lord. Some of you have been unable to do this, and I know it's a very difficult situation. I've prayed with you a number about that and will continue to pray. And I know the Lord hears your prayers and counts your tears in a bottle. But for those who can have children, you have this beautiful vision of the home being filled with life. And I absolutely, I mean, I, I don't think, there's, there's very few things I delight in more than having a full kitchen with, you know, the sound of plates and laughter and, and you know, spirited debate and noise and eating food together, I thoroughly enjoy that. And this is a great blessing to just sit back and watch it. So the vision entails what we just saw in Psalm 128, but the vision is beyond that. The vision is beyond having a a noisy house. And, And by the way, like, you know, a noisy house means that the house needs cleaned more and it makes more work. So if you have a really good yield this way in, this year in, in farming, and you know, say you have an apple orchard and you have a whole bunch of apples this year and a really good crop, well, guess what? That means there's more work. There's more heavy lifting. Well, this is the case with with reproduction, too. If you have a lot of children, there's more work and there's more heavy lifting um, with the more blessings there are. But Psalm 127, verse 5 says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So the vision here is that when you go to war, your kids go to war with you. And they stand up with you. And so you have the vision of the family when it's young and the, and the kids everywhere or the grandkids everywhere and then the family when it's old and the children have been trained and they've learned to fear the Lord and they've grown up in the context of a God-fearing home and, and proper principles have been applied and God's blessed those principles that have been applied and then they grow up and then they become your weapons as you fight the enemy. So that your job is a quiver full of arrows, the arrows are on the back, it's, it's like saying, you know... Children are like five, five, six rounds, and blessed is the man whose magazines are full of them. That's essentially what it's saying, okay? You, you, you train them up to, you know, th- this is like ammunition reserves, right? You're stockpiling ammo by having kids. And the children are, are, are to, you know, you're going to war with the devil while the children are up, and what do you do when the children grow up? You shoot them straight at the devil. Because now they're your weapons, they're God's weapons. And you've trained them to be serve, serving the Lord. And, I, and I'll tell you this, as I talk about children and raising godly offspring, I've never met a happily married couple who wished they had less kids. Maybe they're out there. But I never met a happily married couple who said, I wish I had less kids. But I met a lot of happily married couples who say they wish they had more kids. I'll say that as you consider your own family. And I can say that personally, I have six, and I would welcome some more, okay? Because I love them, and I love family life, and it's one of the greatest joys. But here's the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage, one, today, companionship. The purpose of marriage, two, today, raise godly offspring. One is companionship, two is raise godly offspring. Three, here's a third purpose, and this is what I'm going to end on the purpose of marriage to illustrate the gospel of jesus christ to point to the gospel marriage is a temporary union it's only temporary that points to an eternal union the marriage between a husband and wife is a temporary union that points to an eternal union between jesus christ and his church so ephesians 5 verse 22 The 27 points this out very clearly. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And then verse 32 through 33 says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so this is telling us, the apostle Paul is telling us that marriage is a picture of the union between Jesus Christ and his church. A man who pursues a woman, a man who cares for a woman through personal risk and sacrifice, a man who loves a woman for, his own, for her own good at his own personal cost, and then a woman within the security of her husband's love takes what he gives her and multiplies and nurtures it under the context of a covenant together "...is like a Christ who leaves heaven from his Father's side, seeks a bride, the church, rescues her at the price of his own life, and cares for her for her own good. And a church, within the security of her Christ, takes what he gives her and multiplies it and nurtures it through good works on earth." This is the picture of marriage. The man sacrifices for the woman. Christ sacrifices for the church. The man, the man pursues a wife. Christ leaves heaven to pursue a bride. Okay? The man provides for a wife. Christ provides for his church. The wife takes what the husband gives her and multiplies it and nurtures it. And the church takes what Christ gives her and multiplies and nurtures it by doing good works on earth. This is the biblical vision for marriage ultimately. It's pointing to something. Yes, it comes from somewhere, it comes from the first pages of the Bible. It's all of God's design, but ultimately, it's pointing to something even greater, which is the marriage between Jesus Christ and his church. Marriage illustrates the gospel, it illustrates the gospel. The Bible begins with marriage and the Bible ends with marriage. So that you get, yes, I've talked about the Garden of Eden, but you get to the end of the Bible and there you have Jesus. And there you have a church in distress. And Jesus appears as what? The rider on the white horse with a sword strapped to his side. And the the rider on the white horse storms the earth to rescue his bride with the armies of heaven with him, kills the dragon, snatches up the princess bride, and takes her to safer places. And that's how the Bible ends. The Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve. The Bible ends with the marriage, Jesus Christ and his church. And between marriage and marriage, there's lots of other marriages. And they all point back to the first one. And the design is that they all point back to the future one. So that every marriage is supposed to be a picture of a man who comes to find a bride, protect a bride, and that she takes what he gives him and uses it for good. Jesus leaves earth or leaves heaven, comes to earth, rescues a bride, saves a bride. She's sanctified so that she's taking what he gives her, uses it for good, And then in the last day, Jesus returns on the white horse to rescue his bride once and for all, to unsheath his sword, to slay the dragon, and take the bride to better places. This is the vision of marriage. It all points to Jesus Christ. So what is marriage and its purposes? Well, I talked about two last week. One is sanctification. Two is to prevent sexual immorality. And then I looked at three more this week. And the three I looked at this week were companionship, raising godly offspring, and illustrating the gospel, the purposes of marriage. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us and the perfect display of the gospel that um, is for us here in the scriptures, and we thank you for the display of the gospel that is within marriage. For your perfection and your design I pray that you would strengthen the marriages of this church for those who need help with their marriages and the raising of their children, that they would seek help and they would find it, and that you would provide for them, that you would sanctify them, and their children would be raised properly in a way that honors the Lord. We thank you for your love for us and your kindness towards us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.